The following is a panel discussion entitled The Health of Political Parties and the Role of Scholars in Addressing It. The panel features Jennifer Victor of George Mason University, Amy Erica Smith of Iowa State University, Hans Knoll of Georgetown University, and Seth Maskett of the University of Denver. It was held on January 11, 2020 at the annual meeting of the Southern Political Science Association in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, the uh, welcome to the Southern Political Science Association uh, Saturday afternoon panel on sort of state of parties. I don't remember our, our exact title here, um, but we're sort of half the crew of the political science blog, Mistress of Faction. We spend a lot of time thinking about and writing about parties in in the news and in our research and in our classrooms and so forth. Um, and so this is meant to be really just a dialogue. We don't have a very serious format here. Um, so we're gonna try to dialogue between the four of us. I've got some sort of questions planned. I'll try to lead the discussion a little bit. Um, but then uh, uh, after 45 minutes or so, opening it up to a broader dialogue, um, with, with all of you who were kind enough to attend the panel would be great. Um, we're also audio recording this, um, hoping to maybe post this as a, a blog um, podcast later today. So if you uh, object to being on the audio, um, now is your time to let us know or to step out or whatever it is you wanna do. Um, otherwise, I'll expect your participation is now you've been forewarned, you're, you've given us permission to be on our podcast if you're, if you're in the audio later on. Um, okay, so with that, uh, brief introductions, um, I'm Jen Victor uh, from George Mason University. I'm Amy Erica Smith from Iowa State. Seth Maskett, University of Denver. And Hans Knoll, Georgetown University. The program also lists uh, Greg Koger um, and John Ladd, who were unable to uh, attend the conference. Um, so they're, they're with us in, in spirit. <laughs> um, Okay, so let's just start off. So uh, my, my basic plan here is uh, the, the general trajectory of where I'm hoping to go is to sort of start off with a look at uh, describing the basic health and status of political parties in the United States and abroad. And so I'm gonna ask a question to try to get everybody's um, take on that. And, and I suspect as we're going through this, each of us is gonna have particular parties in mind. And so if we can just kind of vocalize that, uh, might help us think about how generalizable um, any of those uh, issues that, that we bring up might be. So starting with the, the general health and status, um, and then transitioning that into a discussion about potential reforms, those that uh, policymakers or candidates for office are putting out there and, and what we know, what political science tells us about how good or bad some of those might be. Um, and uh, the types of reforms or rules changes either endogenous to parties or uh, more broadly political reforms that affect parties um, that we think might be worthwhile either evaluating using more research or which ones do we need to, would we like to know more about or are there particular ones that uh, from a normative perspective would be worthwhile to advocate for and if, if so, do, do political scientists have a responsibility or do we need to play a role in um, helping that to happen as sort of a, uh, an ac a, a discipline leading a national conversation about how to improve democracy and, and its institutions. Um, so that's my general plan uh, for the next hour and a half or so. Um, so let me start, I'll, I'll start with Amy Erica here on my right. Um, so the first question, we can kind of go down the line uh, on this one. So um, I'm, I'm gonna ask two questions at once because I'm not sure the first one is all, we were talking about this earlier. I'm not sure the first one is, is as useful. But classically, we think of political parties as uh, institutions important for democracies that help solve collective action problems. They solve collective action problems for voters and for candidates and for legislators. 
Um, and is, as we see some pathologies in political parties, my first question was going to be, do we need to update that in some way? Like, is that still the appropriate sort of ideal that we think of the, we need these institutions to play this role in democracy, um, in, even if they're not meeting it, is, is that still the goal that we should be shooting for? Or is there some rethinking that we need to do about uh, the appropriate role that parties play? Um, or is it just a matter of like democracy itself having some ideal that we never actually achieve, but that having that um, sort of lofty goal is, is important. So thinking about that a little bit, and if you don't like that part of the question, because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure how useful it is to think about that ideal. Um, uh, the second part then is, uh, can you talk about a specific party or two um, in whatever country or context uh, you'd like to bring into the conversation here and provide a health assessment? Like how well are parties functioning? How well are they serving these goals, these objectives that we think of them as, as needing to serve in democracy? Um, and so let me, let me just start there. Okay, so I will start off by saying I'm the lone comparativist on, uh, <laughs> on, uh, uh, on the Mistress of Faction team. So my perspective on all of this is going to be different from everybody else's. Uh, I am in particular a Latin Americanist. Um, for those of you who know something about parties in Latin America, parties in Latin America are... Uh, have never performed the ideal functions of parties in the United that, that parties are supposed to perform in the United States. A lot of the theory on what parties are supposed to do is based on the United States, perhaps the UK, a few other um, really old, well-established democracies, and parties in Latin America have always uh, had issues with respect to those criteria. That said. I still buy into the general function, the general notion that parties should solve collective action problems for voters, for legislators, and uh, as organizations. I, yeah, so I'm completely comfortable with the broad ideal of parties, which parties in Latin America generally have not uh, met, met entirely. Um, so a lot of my research is on Brazil. I'm going to talk about Brazil. I'm going to talk a little bit about a few other countries as well and bring them in. I would say what I see across Latin America is parties have never done well and they are perhaps doing less well today than they were say five or ten years ago. In the Brazilian case in particular, uh, the best and most functioning party by any of these criteria uh, was the Workers' Party up until somewhere between three and five years ago. Uh, but there's been a general deterioration in the quality of, or the ability of the Workers' Party to organize voters and to organize legislators um, and to function as as a, an organization um, in the past three to five years. And a large part of that is about uh, the rise of corruption scandals. So corruption scandals are not inherently corruption it is perfectly possible for a party to continue functioning pretty well uh, under corruption. Um, in fact, corruption often helps the wheels turn. Uh, so there's nothing, <laughs> there's, there's nothing inherently problematic about corruption for party organization. Um, but corruption scandals of the kind that have exploded on the scene have been um, really detrimental to the functioning of the Workers' Party. Um, and we've ended up with the foreign president, Lula, in jail. Uh, it's a long story. I could talk about this for about 10 or 15 minutes, and I won't. <laughs> um, so we've ended up with the former president, Lula, in jail. Uh, one, one, pres one former president from the PT impeached and a second one in jail. Um, 
who's temporarily out of prison, but will probably be back soon. Um, so under those circumstances, identification with the Workers' Party has tanked, um, perhaps not surprisingly. Uh, and we, the party is stuck on um, the, it's like it's, it's gotten itself into a sort of a loop where all it can focus on is trying to get Lula, the former president, released. Um, so the Workers' Party has, which w w was the, th the party that all academics put their hope in um, as, as a well-functioning party that might sort of reform things in Latin America, is now not looking so well. I would say more broadly, um, parties in Latin America are struggling to deal with political change. Latin America is going through a lot of political change. Uh, the protests that we've seen most recently in Latin America that made lots of headlines are part of broad scale uh, changes in how citizens organize and how elites organize. These are partially driven by social media. Uh, parties are having a hard time adapting to all of this. Uh, so very broadly, um, parties that seemed established and had created some sort of sense of normalcy and stability in Latin America uh, over the past 15 years or so are no longer responding quite so well. Um, yeah, so then the Workers' Party would be just the most prominent example of it. Other parties having problems are, say, the Movimiento al Socialismo in Bolivia, which now has <laughs> also has a president who's out of power and trying to come back into power, uh, has been exiled to Argentina. Um, the, by contrast, uh, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela seems to be holding on to power really well, which is not good for democracy, but perhaps good for the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. Um, yeah, so generally, we've got democratic parties really struggling to adapt to the changes, to the rise in populism uh, on both the right and left, and to the, um, the, right, the increasing use of social media, new forms of organizing that are m more horizontal, less vertically oriented. So before you pass the baton, I want to ask a follow-up mm -hmm. question that I may also uh, ask, ask the others to, to follow up on. Um, so because you started to talk about some variants across mm -hmm. the, the, some of the parties that you've talked about. Um, and so to the extent that we see some of that variance, are there particular pathologies that you think are sort of the most egregious from a party standpoint or from a democracy functioning standpoint? Yeah. Um. I would say not, I hate to use this word, but polarization. Uh, I would say that the, I'm going to talk about the Brazilian context because that's most concrete yeah. to me. Um, in the Brazilian context, um, what we have seen is leftist parties, so the PT, the Workers' Party, is the best and most prominent example, both of a party in Brazil, it was the, the, the best and most functioning party, and it was on the center left. Um, and the Workers' Party has effectively been unable to respond. It has just done a terribly poor job of responding to a rise in populism on the right, and it has not been able to um, 
present new alternatives that meet citizens' general... Re- so citizens in general are rejecting politics, <laughs> politics as usual, um, sort of standard elite-level politics, um, and the left has not had creative responses to be able to produce new alternatives that meet citizens' general sort of weariness with elite politics. Um, so, and this affects elections. Um, it affects parties' abilities to coordinate. So election results affect parties' abilities to coordinate. Uh, it affects um, everything about how parties are working. So we have, in the, again, in the Brazilian context, the current, par- predi- uh, the, the current president, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, is um, a far-rightist. Uh, he, as some example of the uh, indication of the weakness of parties, he just, he basically chose a party, he couldn't find a major party to sponsor him because he was represented a sort of a rightist tendency that was outside of the mainstream at the time that he was running for office, so it is becoming increasingly mainstream, unfortunately, in Brazil. So he wrote, he ran for office under, on the platform, on of, under the, what we call the banner, of a very small party called the, um, the Social Liberal Party, uh, and he has now left that party. So he is partyless, and he's been talking about how he wants to create his own party, which in the Brazilian context where lots of people create parties is not particularly remarkable, uh, but also a sign of the tremendous dysfunctioning of the Brazilian party system. Um, so just partisan weakness and parties' inability to respond creatively to the existing parties' inabilities to respond creatively to citizen rejection of politics as usual, I would say, are the big problems. Okay, and and we're going to talk about how right. some of those same themes are happening in, in the United States, so thinking right. about the, the global consistencies across the, the party, party pathologies is, mm-hmm. is useful as well. Okay, so um, on, to, on to Seth. So okay. uh, do we need to rethink what parties do or what our ideal of parties are? And then can you talk about a party or two and give a, a health assessment about how well parties are functioning? Okay. Um, I'll jump into this on the on the health assessment angle. Okay. Um, so I'm I'm working on a book right now on that's specifically focused on the Democratic Party at the national level um, between 2016 and 2020. But one of the motivating questions there is: Are Democrats today where Republicans were four years ago? Um, there's sort of this general interpretation that the Republicans were really vulnerable to outsiders. One of the things that um, a healthy party does is it functions as a gatekeeper. It, um, it's, it screens out people that are either bad for the party or bad for the country. Um, if you read in um, How Democracies Die, the Ziblatt and Levitsky book from last year or two years ago, they talk a lot about this, this gatekeeping role and how um, in the early 20th century in the U.S. you had people like Charles Lindbergh and, and um, Henry Ford and some other fairly unsavory characters who at least thought about running for president but got the impression that the parties were not open to them that they were sort of informed, this is, if you're interested in national office, we're, we're not available to you, you can't. And they realized that to do that, you need a party's backing. And so th- that avenue was closed to them, and so they didn't. And that was juxtaposed against Donald Trump running for office and just saying, oh, this is wide open. I can just simply do this. Um, and so the que- you know, one question is, are Democrats in a similar situation? So I, was, I, I don't know that they've faced the same sort of stress test um, but one way I was thinking about this, so like two years ago this month, 
at the Golden Globes, uh, Oprah Winfrey gave a, a real barn burner of a speech talking about the Me Too movement. It got a lot of attention, it got a lot of press. Um, uh, a lot of people started talking very seriously about her as a presidential candidate. Uh, that night, Meryl Streep uh, said uh, on TV that Oprah launched a rocket tonight. I want her to run for president. I don't think she had any intention of declaring, but now she doesn't have a choice. Okay. So when Meryl Streep says that, yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to listen. Um, now, but what accent did she use? <laughs> Polish. Come on. Um, now. You know, I obviously don't know what has gone through Oprah Winfrey's head over the last two years. I don't know if she thought, oh, maybe I should seriously think about this. I, I tend to think of her as someone who, you know, she has an ego. She has some ideas about the way the world should work. But she didn't end up running for president in any serious way. Um, is it because she just decided this, that is not for me? Or is it because she thought seriously about it and then realized the party she would run in was not available to her? Um, that they have like people who are experienced politicians who have a much better chance of doing it and it's just not as wide open as, as the Republican coalition is. Um, so I don't know, but it's, I, I think, a way of thinking about it. I, my impression t tends to be that the Democrats are running a somewhat healthier organization that is not open to just anyone who comes along. Obviously, people like Andrew Yang or Marion Williamson or, or others can run. Um, but that we, you know, we're better off judging a party by whom it nominates rather than who runs. And so far, it doesn't seem as qu quite as wide open. I was trying to think about, you know, when you were asking about like specific areas of, of, of weakness or something like that. I was trying to think like focusing at the, at the state level for some parties. Um, in 2000, it, so let's see, I moved to Colorado in 2004. In 2008, I ran to be a delegate at the national convention when it was in Denver that year. Um, uh, in, in part because I wanted to study it. Like, I wanted to interview other delegates and I wanted to be in, inside the Democratic National Convention. And I thought, oh, it'd be kind of cool to be a delegate. And I ran and I got, and I got in. I got to be a National Convention delegate. Uh, a strong party system should not have let me do that. Um, I wasn't a threat to the party. Like, I wasn't hurting anything. But, like, there are people who had way more experience in the party. And, like, that's a, that's a position that people might want. And there's no way I should have been able to jump the line ahead of them. If I tried that in like Illinois or Wisconsin or something like that, I, I probably wouldn't have been able to succeed. So maybe that's a weakness, um, but I, I don't think it's one that necessarily threatened their long-term well-being. Okay. okay. Oh. <laughs> um, so I like, actually, I like the pairing of these two, these two questions. One about, you know, what do parties do now? Are they, they solve um, uh, collective action problems still or, or what? Uh, and then like, how to d diagnosing the health. Now, the reason I like it is because, I mean, I don't think you can, it's, I don't think it's sensible to say, like, well, a party no longer is the thing that we think a party is. Like, of course, it's a, a thing, it's an entity that um, does certain tasks like solving collective action problems. Uh, and I think, you know, following Aldrich, right, that the parties are endogenous institutions. They come out of the, the framework that we have. And if this is what has evolved from them, then this is how people have decided to solve collective action problems. So they're, they are that thing. Um, and so, you know, it's not like somebody sat down and said, we need to create an institution for part of this political system that will serve this role. Like, literally, they didn't do that, right? This constitution doesn't have these, these solutions. Someone came up with them later. Um, and even in uh, political systems that aren't as hostile to parties as the United States, um, parties still evolve in re reaction to the, gener the creation of, uh, of a parliament and, and, you know, sort of longer history. So, um, but I do think it makes sense to say, like, do parties do this job well, or are there other ways of uh, solving collective action problems and coordination um, that uh, either supplant parties, 
which I mostly think the answer is no, um, or take advantage of and are sort of parasitic on parties, which I think the answer is mostly yes, right? So, I mean, what happened with Trump and with Sanders in 2016 were these non-party actors, people from outside the party, especially Trump, very outside the party, um, and they could have tried to run their own in organizations and built their own everything the way that some anti-party type folks would do. They didn't instead. They went in but took over and tried to get into the party, uh, clearly following the path that Seth laid out about an outsider being able to uh, do this. If you had not done that, Trump might not have gotten the idea exactly, right? um, <laughs> that he could do this. Um, and so, like, the pressure is: does does this outside pressure, you know, undermine the the health uh, of the of the party, or is it a, is a, a potential um, problem? I think when you think about the diagnosing the health of parties in the United States, at any rate, um, although I've, in other places too, to some degree, but definitely in the United States, um, in the United States, uh, you know, political parties sort of have a chronic illness, right? So it's not like there's a a, oh, well, now they're not healthy because this, you know, something happened in 2016. We have a constitution that makes it difficult for uh, parties to function, and we have a longstanding tradition in the United States of anti-party uh, sentiment. Um, and so it's very, you know, always the parties are, uh, you know, managing their illness well or not well. Uh, and and that's, the, that, that's the question. And so the question now is whether or not the, the rise of populism that America was talking about is not, is enough to cause problems in the U.S. Um, and uh, I think um, you know. I think it might be, and it could be. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's a concern. I don't think it says. Well, then the Democratic Party is therefore uh, unhealthy because uh, it you know it allows in uh, um, some candidates who maybe shouldn't be running per se. Like uh, Seth, I would agree at least to the extent that Seth says that at that point. But um, it is it is a it's a challenge that parties in the United States have faced to to sort of a greater degree. And I think it is a problem. Not so much that. Anybody who wants to can run, although in a lot of a lot of you know a more ideal party system, you wouldn't anybody wouldn't be able to. I mean, anybody could run. Like, I would like to be the uh, you know the the leader of the British Labour Party. I just announced that. <laughs> like, no one's taking that seriously, and no one should take Andrew Yang any more seriously. And the fact that they do is a bit of a problem. Um, and Labour does need someone. So yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. I, like, You're no, now, I'm so. not even that. I'm not even that. Uh, it wouldn't even be as bad as some of the options, perhaps. <laughs> but um, and yet, that shouldn't be taken seriously. And I think you know Yang either. Um, and I think what really bugs me about if you were to look at the case, uh, whether or not the sort of this populist, um, anti-party sense that we've like, sort of ripped apart the ability of the party to choose its own leaders. It's not so much that it's a problem that Yang is running. It's a problem that so many of the very, very good possible candidates. Have been pushed out, mm-hmm. right? So, so um, if, if if the the debate stage included uh, Andrew Yang and Tom Steyer, and they were you know um, sort of comic relief, but meanwhile we were making a decision among uh, Biden and Warren and, and Harris and Booker and Castro, that would be like a healthy party system. Mm-hmm. We're not, right? Of those those people, maybe two are still in the in the mix, and we have a bunch of other. Uh, people who probably shouldn't be in the in the in the conversation, by my my reckoning, who are involved there, and I think this is because right now the U.S. party system, both the Democrats and the Republicans, are not managing their chronic illness as well as as we'd like them to. Okay, so I, I like the the. I mean, I was thinking of it before. I, my question was about the most egregious pathologies, and now we're talking about is managing a chronic illness. I think this is a useful metaphor for for how we're thinking about this. Um, so there's a part of me that wonders if we should try to get more specific about what the illness is before we talk about reforms, um, but I don't, I don't know how uh, productive it is to, to push on that. So if, if you have thoughts, then uh, feel free to take it in that direction. But 
Um, the sort of second question that I want to come to here is, um, as we've seen pathologies develop, um, or the, the chronic illness, um, I want to talk about what we can do about that. Like, what are the things that people have proposed doing that can make it better? Um, or that there are, so I have the sense that there are a number of reforms, mostly of the political reform variety, not so much of the party reform variety, but that they would affect parties. But there are a number of reforms that get floated out there that are just bad, and we have a good amount of evidence that shows that they're bad. Um, and that the types of reforms that could actually manage the chronic illness better or affect the pathologies are not really talked about. Um, so I'd like for us to get on the record, get a little bit more specific about that. Like, what are the reforms that are out there? What do we know about how good or bad they are? Um, and what are the things that maybe we should be talking about instead? And for this phase of the conversation, I, I think I'm going to ask to focus on either um, internal party rules or broader political reforms that would affect um, the parts of the political process that parties are most involved in. So you seem like you want to. Well, I mean, you started off with the like, what what is the chronic illness? And yeah. I mean, I do have some. I, I, I think we could be a little more specific about oh, yeah, it, and definitely. it does matter because what reform? What are we trying to solve with the reforms, exactly. right? Right. And so, I mean, I think there there are two um, two or three things that are are the the problem. One is, I mean, we have a constitution that is not designed to incorporate political parties very well, right? It's certainly not designed to incorporate political parties of the sort that we have now. It's not meant, parties are mentioned in the constitution. Um, the logic of representation in the Constitution is geographic. The idea is that you have people who represent states or districts, and they will represent those interests, and they'll come together and have a conversation. That's not what parties are about. Um, and so that's, like, problematic. That is not, not, not unique to have uh, an institution that is not well-suited to parties, but it makes it difficult, right? So in other first-past-the-post systems, they also have to form uh, bonds across the system, but ours, we have, a, it's particularly difficult, especially the degree to which um, the, there's malapportionment in, uh, in the Senate. So that's, the, the framework is not good. But I think the other piece of the chronic illness is the sense which many um, participants in the political system, not just voters, but voters and other activists don't like parties and are, have an anti-party thread that's been, uh, been around for a very long time. Um, and so you had progressive reformers who were like, well, how can we do a, make a system that doesn't have, doesn't have parties? It's very hard to imagine reforms that will strengthen parties when you introduce those reforms and people decry them as anti-democratic, yeah. right? Um, and so that's, of course, uh, like from the point of view of, of, uh, of your, you know, the next part of the question, like what do we do? Usually I'm inclined to think like what you, you can't change people. You need to change institutions to you know, accommodate how the preferences that people have in the first place. But if the problem is that people aren't willing to like let parties do what they're supposed to do, it's it's a hard to come up with a good set of, of reforms. Um, and then the other piece of the illness, which was maybe less less chronic, but I want to mention because it ties back to what um, Amy Eric was mentioning, is just this this particular populist um, other ways of organizing social media kind of connections that uh, that can outrun uh, party organization, and that is not unique to our system, right? I mean, you think about. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not a, a comparativist, but I sometimes play one on a panel. And um, <laughs> like you think about some of these uh, um, populist parties in Europe, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, Chica Stella in, in Italy, as a party that is organized around an uh, internet connection and or let's get let's connect and communicate and form there, and they're essentially end running uh, the way parties are supposed to work. But then they form a party because that's how you have to in, in the system. But that's the same kind of threat that. Um, 
that the, the apocalypse plays everywhere. That is a more recent development. But if you have the chronic illnesses that um, the U.S. system has already, um, you're, that, that will play an even harsher role. So that's not an answer about uh, um, like what institutions. I have some thoughts about institutions, but I think that um, it's, it's kind of um, bleak if you think about the main problem is that people don't want us to have parties. At least a large number of people don't want us to have parties. I want to ask you a follow-up there, because uh, with respect to the institutions are really hard to change and mm -hmm. question, it seems to me that one of the issues is that, as partly because of the media environment, politics has become incredibly nationalized. We operate at this national level of politics, but mm -hmm. none of our party or political institutions are national. We do elections. We do it all at the local level, at the state level, and smaller. Um, and so is, th is there an institutional change that we could make that would make that mismatch less bad um, that would potentially improve the system? I mean, I think that's, that is the, a good way of, of diagnosing it. And there is, to the extent that we do have nationalized institutions, they are in the parties. Right, so yeah. right. I mean, parties are still organized at the state level, but there is a national party, and that national party organization, in some ways, is endogenous to the problem of geographic-based representation. How do we solve that problem? Well, we have a party that helps to build connections uh, across um, uh, across different geographic locations and encourages people to, um, you know, I want to participate in the system. Where do I donate? Where do I where do I campaign? And so, you know, like. I live in the District of Columbia. If you really bought the, the logic of geographic uh, uh, representation, then um, and aside from the fact that I'm shut out of uh, representation in Congress, um, that's where I should do all of my stuff. But in fact, if I ever try to get interested, everyone in the parties would say, no, we need you in Virginia, we need you in Pennsylvania, can you donate to this race in New Mexico? Um, and broadly speaking, that's what's happening. Right? Again, endogenous to the failure of the institutions to match how our politics works, we have decided to end run them by, well, I can't vote in that district, but I can give money and the like. So would it be nice maybe to have uh, political institutions that match that behavior that, pol that voters are already doing? Like what if you had um, um, uh, multi-member districts in, in the states and let the states so it's just, we're going to still have some degree of geographic representation. I think it'd be hard to make bigger changes without serious change to the Constitution. But multi-member districts across all the states, where then the states, uh, uh, people voting in those states can be thinking, okay, I'm not trying to represent, you know, California's fourth district. I'm representing, you know, California broadly. And then, okay, I'm running as a Republican in California. And there's plenty of Republicans in California that are will be represented if you start drawing them across the whole the whole state. So weakening the really, really focused uh, geographic sense of representation might mesh with the party system that is already moving in a more national direction. Yeah, no, that's good. Who wants to go next on the, um, the uh, so the, the question, uh, to get back to the original question where we are, is to think about reforms that we could focus on that would strengthen parties or help address the pathologies or um, address the, the chronic illnesses that we see in parties. Can I jump? Yeah, okay. I'll, um, so I want to use this to to talk about again focusing on national Democrats in in the U.S. Um, to talk about superdelegates. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically the the fights that the Democrats have had among themselves for more than half a century now is you know after every time they lose an election is are we too open or are we not open enough. And they try and move things in one direction or another. And, and, you know, for a while, you know, in the 1970s, it was 
things are too open to outsiders, things are too populous, we keep losing elections, or we're electing people who don't know what they're doing, and so let's, you know, the, the invention in the early 80s was superdelegates. Let's, let's bring in elites, allow for a little more elite control. And then we've seen, you know, tinkering with that over the years of either giving them more numbers or fewer numbers and giving them a little more power or, or less power. And, you know, in some ways that's healthy. Um, you know, they're at least thinking about the idea of, of should elites have greater control? Should we be able to have more of a screening power um, over who we nominate? Um, what I think was, you know, one of the more interesting things to happen over this last four-year cycle was the DNC essentially voting itself out of power. That is, you know, like <laughs> voting to, to reduce superdelegate power. They, they voted to get rid of their own first vote on, on the convention floor. Um, and internally, that made sense as a decision. That was a way of, you know, mollifying some of the factions within the party. It, it got some of the Sanders people on board. Some of the Clinton people were like, you know, as long as we can work together. But they also, you know, they were reducing their own voice and in uh, potentially moving things more in this, you know, somewhat chaotic, somewhat populist direction. And at the same time, I, you know, I watch this and I also think, these superdelegates have had a power that they almost never use, that they're really reticent to employ. Um, we, we basically never see them pushing the party in a direction that the average voter in the party wasn't already very comfortable with. You never really see them sort of vetoing the party's choice in a, in a convention. They might have given Walter Mondale a little bit of a, of a boost in, in 84, but that's kind of about it. They're... For the most part, these superdelegates are politicians, and they're not willing to, you know, get out really far ahead of, of where the rest of their party is. Um, and there's also this concern, this constant concern about legitimacy of party decisions, and that if you're too far ahead of the voters, um, you know, they they perceive it as some sort of something of a crisis, and they don't trust you, and, and you know that that could be very dangerous for a party. So, you know, we we still see. Democrats and other parties sort of wrestling with this. Um, I, I think they moved in the wrong direction, but at, at the same time, I'm not sure, uh, you know, they were using the right direction all that well in the first place. Just doing a two-figure on, on, um, on Seth's point just now, part because I think that the, the, the change about superdelegates is an interesting one, in part because it's such a... It was such a trivial thing to give up, right? Because as you say, they weren't really using it. Um, and um, it is possible that they, they never would have thought it would be uh, something that they can use. I mean, I, one superdelegate that I spoke to told me that they were won over by Obama in 2008 and that had he not been able to win them over, then they would, would have stopped, you know, would have supported uh, Clinton, who they mostly were supporting before that. Um, and what, th what this person implied was that uh, Sanders had not made any effort to win them over. And if it had gotten to that point in 2016, they would have, would have stopped um, uh, uh, Sanders um, from, from overdoing. Of course, that's easy for someone to tell me that that's what they would do. Um, <laughs> but also because politically in that where they are, where that seems like the safe, like not only is it easy to say, but that's because most people were in favor of Clinton, it's the right thing to say and, and for the reason that you mentioned. But the thing I wanted to note is it was a trivial thing to give up. They still didn't give up the a power of uh, you know, on a second vote. So if you ever do get to the point where it actually matters that there's voting at, uh, you know, at the convention, it's there. Um, and I think this uh, it points to one of the problems with trying to do any kind of serious reform is that you have to do reforms that are negotiating with the people who don't want the party to be strong. Mm -hmm. And so you have to like give up some things yeah. to them in order to get other things. And that kind of negotiation um, 
you know, is, uh, it, it makes it difficult to design good institutions, and this is a good example of that. That's a good point. America. Yeah. Okay. It's going to be very hard for me to, <laughs> to, to uh, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing this from such a very different perspective. That it's almost like we're having different conversations. Um, I would say, so I'm going to answer a question that you didn't ask initially, okay. which is, um, as I think about this from a big global perspective, the places where I see parties doing best are unfortunately authoritarian systems. Uh, so the, undoubtedly, without question, the strongest party in the world today is the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. Um, and the, the Chinese Communist Party is growing in strength. I'm not an expert on Chinese politics, but I, as a comparativist, I can tell you for certain that the Chinese Party, Communist Party is only intensifying its control over Chinese politics. The other parties that I can think of that are doing really well, I mean, I was just talking about the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. Venezuela is doing terribly. Venezuela is in, is in a prolonged crisis that's lasted years, and it just keeps going getting worse. But the United Socialist Party of Venezuela is actually doing relatively well. Um, there are many authoritarian and authoritarian-leaning parties around the world that are really doing very well, which leads me to think that part I think that part of what's going on with parties in the world today is a secular global trend towards authoritarianism. Unfortunately, we are in the middle of a global wave of authoritarianism or autocratization, as some people are calling it, uh, which is one, which is to say that the number of countries in the world that are counted as authoritarian, coded as authoritarian by political scientists, is increasing. So I think that we're in a moment where authoritarian parties are doing better. What's driving that is really complicated, um, and I don't think I can answer, all the, answer exactly why, we are in the, why authoritarianism is on the rise in the world today. But I think authoritarian, as a big, broad global trend, I think we have to wrestle with the fact that authoritarian parties are just doing better right now than are ones that, have, that are democratic. So that, I mean... <laughs> we're not going to suggest reforms for the Chinese Communist Party mm -hmm. to make it more democratic. Um, <laughs> or or <laughs> reforms to make the United Socialist Party of Venezuela more democratic. Thinking on the other end of the spectrum, um, Brazil, for instance, which remains a democracy, albeit one with lots of problems, um, we have just intensely weak parties. Um, extraordinarily weak to the point that the president has is now partyless and is talking about starting his own party but who knows what's going to happen with that um and where it's extraordinarily easy to renounce your party or to find a new party if, if the existing parties won't let you join them then you just start a new one um so my sense is that we have these global trends. One is authoritarianism, a second one is populism, uh, which is exacerbated by social media. And that in systems where parties are weak, these two trends, particularly democratic systems where parties are weak, these two trends are exacerbating what's happening, are, are, are exacerbating the weakness. So it is like both Brazil and the United States have been countries that in different ways have chronic illnesses with respect to the party system. And then you, you catch these two bugs and these chronic illnesses make everything much worse. Um, so a global trend towards authoritarianism, 
combined with a movement towards populism is revealing all of the weaknesses of organisms that have historically, chronically had weaknesses in their party systems. And how do we, I mean, so I could name various reforms that Brazilians, for instance, have considered over the years to reform their party system. One of the obvious things would be like, don't let you have a president, don't let the president just renounce his party for no reason. Um, And that is, in fact, a law. Um, He's just going to skirt it. Um, because it's very hard to make the law enforceable. Um, and he's going to get, I mean, he's, he's basically gotten out of it. Um, you can't actually fire a president for, for quitting his party if he wants to quit his party. Um, so, yeah. I want to ask a slightly different version of the question, specifically to you, but then also in the American context as well. Because one of the things that we're, we're saying here is that institutional reform is needed, but it's super hard. Mm-hmm. And uh, parties internally are not particularly democratic anyway, but they play this role in, in strengthening democracies. So, uh, but we're also saying that we've got problems with polarization. We've got problems with uh, income inequality that's driving uh, populism and authoritarianism trends. And media is part of the problem here, too. So, so some of what I'm getting out of this is the, the reforms, that, the productive potentially reforms that we should be talking about are not just uh, party oriented or democratic institution oriented, but are in fact policy. Like if media is part of the problem, then would media regulations or changes in the media regulatory uh, policy field um, ultimately have a downstream effect on improving uh, polarization or some of these other uh, pathologies that we're talking about? Or uh, we could talk about uh, campaign finance reforms. We could talk about um, uh, tax structures or other economic-oriented reforms to try to reduce income inequalities. Like, should, should the conversation about using parties to help strengthen democracies not just be about rules and regulations and democratic institutions, but it should, also be, should, should it perhaps also be about policy? Clearly, that was good Yes, no, that's a good question. Because <laughs> I stumped them all. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm trying to get a better sense of it. What do you mean, should it be about policy? Well, if the idea is what changes could be made yeah. to improve democracy or improve democratic institutions, mm-hmm. um, and institutional reform, as we were talking about, is extremely hard for lots of reasons. Doesn't mean we should stop talking about that, but there are barriers there. Um, should should we be putting more energy? Like political scientists, uh, at least my part of political science doesn't talk about policy that much. Um, I think there's a subfield that does that, but I don't know who those people are. <laughs> um, but it seems to me that if you if if you can't get the institutions to meet the needs, are there regulatory structures or policies or statutory changes that could be made that could have the downstream effects of getting as a as a as a workaround? I guess, I guess part of the difficulty in answering the question is that it's hard to imagine a policy change that I wouldn't call an institutional change, right? Policy, right. Statute, sure, statutes right. are, poli- are, are right. part of the institutions. Right. But I think what you're getting at is, is are there policies that would, de- that would change um, something about the environment rather than tr- actually directly changing? And so, that, so it's like right. indirectly doing that. And I, I'm not sure that there's such a thing um, because 
um, while I can, you know, we can say, oh, there's this about the media environment is a problem or this, a lot of those things are, you know, features of the media environment because we like, believe in a free press and an un, a largely unregulated. But we also so deregulated the FCC in the 1980s and made other structures, uh, rules changes that helped facilitate some of that. Right, right. But I mean, if you, okay, so, but if you made changes to the, what, like, what policy change would you make that would make it so that uh, we, we'd have less um, uh, fake news? Right, it's not obvious what to do, and I'm not like maybe I'm not saying there are no no proposals or no solutions, but now we're pretty far. Like, I, I, if there is a policy lever that would make it so that uh, you know people um, appreciated the role of parties more, I'd be all for such a policy lever. <laughs> but but I don't know that that policy lever uh, exists, and if it does, it's not you know now it's we're pretty far afield into the questions of of how to um, how to navigate the issues of freedom and and the rest that we think are really important. I mean. You know, as we, we know from the, the name of the, the blog, uh, the issue often is that factions uh, cause mischief, and they do so because uh, liberty um, has this you know, yes. nurturing role for factions. Yes. You were going to have a follow-up, I think, when I, I jumped in to ask my stumping policy question. No, well, I was just sort of thinking about... Um, and to get back to what Amy Erica was saying before, is whether we should consider a party like Chinese, China's Communist Party as being in the same line of work as a party in Brazil or a party in Britain or a party in the right. U.S. Um, it, it is essentially a single party um, entity in an authoritarian system. Are, I imagine I'm, there is some overlap in the jobs that they do, mm -hmm. and, uh, but um, also, yeah, I guess it's disturbing if the healthiest parties in the world are the ones that are not doing the things that we think parties do right. <laughs> in a democracy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, I also thought this, the point that America raised was really uh, interesting. I mean, I think part of it is a question of, of what do we mean by party strength, which we're kind mm -hmm. of vague about a lot, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, party strength in the United States is presumably something about the ability of the party to um, conduct uh, election campaigns and to compete in electoral, uh, in democratic institutions like a, a legislature within the presence of other parties, right. whereas that's not what the CPC is trying to do. Um, at the same time, though, I don't think we want to just say, oh, well, the CPC is a different animal, so we won't make the comparison to it, precisely because of the ways in which uh, democracies transition that America's raising, right? So we don't want to just say, well, um, this party, we're now we're in a democracy, so these parties, uh, uh, we, we want to make them strong and, and do what they do, um, and that's going to be fine if by strengthening part the party or one party, uh, we put ourselves on a path towards, um, you know, a more authoritarian model, right? Which some countries. It'd be really nice if, happens. like, maybe one of the co-authors of the blog was writing a book about strong parties and partisanship. Oh yeah, yeah. Julia Zari's doing that. Yeah. I'm just <laughs> plugging her work even though she's my hair. Okay, there's Can my I? homage to Julia. Yeah. Um, well, I guess uh, to sort of get to your question about like, are there ways of, I guess, making the system healthier <laughs> through policy or, or, or changing the institution? Um, like one of the things might be just if, if we weren't worried so much about differences in voter turnout, um, if we had some sort of way of, of simply protecting the vote and allowing for very high voter turnout um, mm -hmm. without sort of discrimination based on race or based on party or, or, or age or, or wealth. Um, in some ways, I like that's an area where I would like the parties not to be fighting. Like I would not not to have major differences along those lines and where they were mostly turned about mostly interested in getting their votes to turn out rather than suppressing the other side. Um, on the other hand, you know, that's a democratic value I hold. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, of course I would like one side to win that. Um, but 
Uh, I suppose, yeah, that would be something nice and healthy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have two remaining questions that I want to, um, hopefully for, for us to get to, but I also am conscious of making sure we leave enough time for some audience participation here. So I'm going to ask both questions and then you guys speak to whichever, mm. um, whichever you want to. Um, so, uh, one is about, uh, pushing a little bit on, um, reforms that you've heard about or that candidates are floating that are just bad. Um, and talking about those a little bit and what we know about them and, and getting some of that more on the record. Um, if, if somebody would like to provide that service, I think that's good. Um, and then the other is about the role of political scientists or the role of academia or social scientists or historians or um, uh, humanities scholars in general and uh, what responsibilities we have to be putting stuff out there more. Um, you know, so uh, I think it was Hans earlier was talking about um, sort of the, the impediment to reforms is that there are, in, in order to strengthen parties, you have to appease people who want to weaken parties. And so there's this sort of uh, paradox in that. But that seems to me the type of thing that political science or, or knowledgeable people could speak to. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe it would all just be talking into the, into the wind because you ultimately have to say, you know, try to convince people that yes, it's Pareto optimal if parties are better. Trust me, yeah, some of you are going to lose power, but we'll all be better off. Like, that's a really hard mm-hmm. argument to make. Um, so, it, I, I guess part of what I'm getting at is is that futile or is that something that is our responsibility that we should actually be putting out there more in, in ways that I, I, I don't know how we do that more than we already are, but all right, I'm going to leave my odd question there and let you guys go at it. I think that's one question. That is, okay. is, right, right, which is that um, one of the things, one of the main things that political scientists can and do do is to point out when uh, reforms are, are just really uh, misguided. Um, and uh, a political scientist, Brendan Nyan, has a piece in the Washington Post in this last month that was like, you could teach a whole political science class on the bad ideas of Tom Stair. Um, <laughs> uh, and, um, and so, like, the, those, are the bad, those are some of the bad ideas. Uh, term limits and uh, these sort of, actually, sort of like, they all sort of fall into a, a, a broad field of, um, I don't think, I don't really understand why people disagree, but if we just all get people together and, like, talk and act like a, like uh, sensible people, then we would solve problems, right? That's the idea of term limits is, well, you don't want people to be in power too long because they'll be uh, come entrenched and we'll just replace them with other people who are equally capable of representing districts. Uh, whereas, of course, uh, expertise is really important, right? And so knowing what's happening. Um, uh, I'm, this isn't stay right now, but uh, specifically, but um, I'm somewhat skeptical of a lot of the like ranked choice voting uh, solutions. Be, not because it's a bad idea to try to cultivate uh, an electoral system that more accommodate more parties, but because most of the reformers actually don't want to accommodate more parties. They want to make it easier for people to vote for whoever they want to vote for, and they want to make lots of choices. And so they don't. They want to well, we'll introduce ranked choice voting, but they'll keep things at single member districts, right? Which is if you want multiple parties, you, it's really the district magnitude is the thing you want to increase. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a ton of political science on all these things, including some disagreements about exactly how to play it out. And so I think that um, a lot of those bad idea reforms that are out there, we can and should continue to work on. And on some of those questions, like maybe it's open choice, uh, open question about how bad uh, term limits would be and in what way. So we should do more research on that, which people are doing. So like that's so I think I mean I think in those cases the bad reforms um, are are sort of easy to identify and easy to to criticize from political science. The issue is then, what, how do we get to some possibly good reforms that could actually be implemented? 
Um, mm-hmm. One thing that the bad reforms, again, uh, maybe especially ranked choice voting, which I'm a little more ambivalent about as a bad reform, but um, uh, tell us is that if you really push hard on something, you can make things happen, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, especially if you can harness the power of the people who want more of like weaker parties in, in, this, in this case. Um, so I can like, imagine a, situ- a situation where we could transform uh, parties, uh, transform institutions to empower parties. Uh, Lee Drutman has a book um, arguing for ranked choice voting, ran- arguing for a multi-party system, which he says like, we want, that's what we should do. We want to have this institution so that we get more parties. I'm skeptical that that happens without uh, more focus on pa- empowering the parties themselves. But clearly that's a path that he's articulating and that we could, more of us could push in, in that direction. So um, I do think we as, as a discipline should be talking about these, even reforms that can't be implemented precisely because maybe someday they could be. So what would it look, so we, there are a few states that have multi-member districts. So we, mm-hmm. we, we know something about how this works, at least at the state level. What would it take to make it happen in the U.S. House of Representatives? Well, I mean, so I'm, that's not my uh, expertise. Uh, we have people in the audience who can t- speak to that better. Um, but I mean, I think there's, there are barriers, obviously, to, to, to doing this both. Um, pe- change is hard, right? So just like implementing things across the board is, uh, is tricky. Um, but um, and then there are, you know, uh, the main issue is that elections are at every state level, right? So if you wanted to make a change that would affect the uh, Congress broadly, you'd need to be making 50 changes. And um, that's, uh, you know, it's not impossible, right? Because, you know, the Congress could do that, but would the members who are there want to do that? I, just, um, I wanted to touch on one example that Hans was bringing up, um, uh, term limits. And this, was, this actually came up in, uh, Chris Kantak brought that up in a panel earlier today, that in some ways that subject doesn't get more pushback or more attention from political scientists when they go, you know, when they talk to national media on is because we kind of solved it like we figured it out like we did a bunch bunch of people who were interested in it did a bunch of research and found it's almost uniformly bad mm-hmm. um like it, it does it does not do the things reformers say it will do mm-hmm. and in fact it does some of the opposite things um you know in terms of uh it, it, it makes things more partisan it makes the, the legislators more dependent on lobbyists and it has all these 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 negative consequences and yet a fair amount of the political system seems to be immune from that um, they kind of don't care that we've f- figured that out and maybe we should be arguing about it more um, or maybe we just kind of accept, well, there is, a, there is a sector of the electorate that will always just, that simply believes in it. And if, uh, if you know, we have evidence that it doesn't work, says, so, well, we just haven't done it right or we haven't done it enough yet or we haven't made the term short enough yet. Um, and so I find it fascinating that there are candidates like Steyer who come along and it, He's maybe an unusual example, but there are plenty of candidates with decent shots of getting the office they're running for who run on these um, these kind of sort of older progressive notions of what good government looks like, and it almost invariably includes term limits and getting money out of politics and the other things that don't work. Um, but um, there is there's at least a perception that there's some sort of a market for that still in the electorate, and I don't know if maybe it's more a thing on the Democratic side than the Republican side, maybe it's more endemic to the left than the right, or um, the idea that government is perfectible. Um, but, you know, having answers has not necessarily changed that all that much. Yeah. So I would say that, yes, the political scientists absolutely 
have a responsibility and maybe or have, have should and maybe even they like they 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 have a, a need to talk about these things. I think part of what's going on with this term limit thing is that the incentives of academics to conduct research don't align with the in, with public need to hear these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So academics may pretty much across the board believe that term limits are a bad thing and have lots of good reasons uh, for it, but academics don't necessarily have the incentive to put that information out there on a regular basis because we kind of already know it and have this, you know, and we've got this down. It, it it's just not its something, internal purpose. It served its, yeah. Yes, this debate served its internal purpose. We got some publications out of it and we've moved on to other questions maybe part of our role is to keep talking about it over and over and over again (laughs) despite the fact that we already know the answer to the question this is one of those things where there is actually i think i I, this is not my area of expertise but i think this is actually an area of actual consensus or something close to consensus (laughs) in academia which there are very few of them and we're not talking about it because there's consensus there's just not interesting to talk about areas where there's consensus um but maybe it's our job, right? You're not going to get yeah. published, <laughs> right. but maybe it's our job to keep talking about things where there are areas of consensus, mm. um, in and a so, way that we're not doing. So, part, some of what you're saying is what's hampering the the academic incentive for getting things out to the public more uh, is uh, the internal academic incentives. Right. It's, our our you know, internal incentives are to argue with each other, right? Um, and to argue with each other on the pages of journals, um, and on the question of we're not going to argue with each other over the issue of term limits because we all agree and we think it's boring at this point. Um, So, but maybe we just need to keep talking about it over and over again in the media all the time because somebody, we we, we need to argue not with ourselves. Right. (laughs) We're not arguing with ourselves. We're arguing with Tom Steyer. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Well, I just, I mean, I think that this is about to, as we all know in this room, I mean, the academic incentives um, are not for, uh, public engagement or for you know public scholarship it's for uh, it's for this other part that's what we're supposed to do and other people are supposed to like translate or communicate and sometimes they do right so there are uh, journalists who uh, understand this and do try to communicate that every all experts think this is a bad idea um, uh, but I think uh, there's less of that both there's less interest among journalists to talk to us and there's less uh, incentive for us to do that and we need to if we really care a lot about that we need to do more to um, to incentivize that as part of your career and advancement involves or, or can involve more public in, engagement. And I remember um, a, a discussion of this that uh, Ezra Klein wrote this piece many years ago, where he was saying one of the problems is there's no all of the, the academic research is behind paywalls and, and is gated, so you can't get at it, which is true. But he doesn't need that, right? What's not behind paywalls is like basic introductory textbooks, which have the answers to these questions, mm-hmm. right? And um, but no one wants to read, right? You don't want to start an article about that because it's not new, right? And so we need to do more, like how to continually educate folks and you know educate them in the classroom, but also elsewhere. That is not an easy thing to do, and that's probably why all kinds of bad um, uh, ideas persist in all sorts of, uh, of disciplines. It's just that if everybody has a bad um, uh, impression or a bad uh, understanding of Ulysses. It's unfortunate, but it doesn't have consequences for democracy, I don't think. <laughs> Maybe. 
Okay, um, I want to transition to opening this up uh, a little bit. We are uh, fortunate to have a nice little audience here with us who have been attentively listening to us yammer on at, at, at one another. Um, but uh, let me just uh, open this up to the field of uh, participants here, whoever would like to either make a comment or uh, ask a question. Should we offer them the microphone too? Sure. <laughs> okay. And you may have the mic, the conch is here. <laughs> oh, would you like the like microphone? Well, I normally wait, but I'm trying to be positive that I'm Research is pretty clear about that. If lady, you gotta like ladies gotta start speaking up first. So um, Shannon Jenkins, so Doug Roscoe and I we study local parties. So I think we think about it from the local perspective. And one of the puzzles that I've been sort of thinking about is that parties as organizations have to know that they would be better if they were stronger organizations, right? And like corporations think about this too, like how do we manage the corporation and the organizations? But parties in the US seem to be really bad at like creating organization. And I know it's because there's not, but why don't, why don't they at least try? <laughs> That's what I can't figure out. Like I think our research shows that like local parties when they're active can do stuff and like state parties can do stuff and it's like they're like yeah but we just can't. So I can't figure out like I'm trying to puzzle out why don't parties try to do more like you could probably talk to your state parties and be like hey we would all be better off if we work together a little more like I, I just can't quite figure that out and I'm wondering if any of you guys have ideas about that one. I would actually ask you so I don't know what to do with the conch at this point. Oh. Um, <laughs> Because I know you've done research on party chairs and local, like county level party chairs, and I'm wondering, like, do they? If you ask it, like, why don't you do more? Is the question like, well, you know, the incentives aren't really there. It's not. It's not. That's not I, doing I a good job. Or like, talk about coordination at all. Like, I don't think local party chairs yeah. really talk and interact. With, so we're looking at this mm -hmm. with our data, but they don't interact very much, and I just don't. I, Part of the reason why I did the survey because I was like, why? Right. Why are you not doing this? You're killing me. So there's, uh, I think Hans maybe wanted to jump in here. I want to hear what, I, I want you to answer my question. <laughs> so so my, one of my thoughts is, uh, and maybe this is where Hans was going, I don't know. Um, if, so the parties are not just these local party chairs, right? Like right. it's all of the local interest groups, right. some of which are yeah. truly local right. and some right. of which are like, you know, national organizations with local chapters. Right. Um, and so to the extent that these local parties require coordination, it's not just these little uh, regional captain chairs or whatever they are, um, but it's, it's all of the, the network of diverse interest groups that are feeding the party. And, and, and that is a really complicated coordination well, they don't problem. Try with the part that they know that has to be there by their plot. Like, like they're not even trying with this, for, this, like this is the first step and then that the extended part yeah. of the network is like, there's no steps. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know the answer to the, to the question, <laughs> but I do, but I have, a, I have an, an intuition, right, which is that um, local politics is generally about um, a set of, uh, of local offices, including federal office, but the federal office that's there. And you're, you know, the, the, you know, if the parties are endogenous institutions and partly they're endogenous to help people get elected. They apparently are doing okay by somebody to get 
some people are getting elected. And so then, like, what do you gain from the further coordination? What you gain from the further coordination is the ability of the party to act like, later in later stages, communicating and coordinating, making sure that when I show up at the legislature, my allies that show up are also on the same page and these kinds of things. And it's just far enough removed from the immediate uh, uh, decision of, I gotta run for office tomorrow. And we have so many offices and there's so, it's everything so decentralized. It would be, it would be much simpler if the national party came to the local parties and said, you have to be organized and you have to talk to each other. But the national party doesn't have that interest because it's so fragmented. So like there's no, there's no place where anyone has the interest to do uh, to make the connections happen, even though everyone would be better off if that happens. Um, Which explains why the Chinese Communist Party is so good. Because <laughs> right. um, they're so centralized. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think, I mean, some variant, very, that's not a complete answer, I think, but I think that's part of the story is that, you know, the things that we ask parties to do um, can be done without maybe not done optimally, but done without. And at the end of the day, as a politician, I don't necessarily want to spend a lot of energy creating an institution that's not for my career. It's for someone else's career, which is what party, part of our parties are about. Just gonna, so I think this is something what, what Jen was saying in response to this question before, but um, my impression is a lot of what county parties and other local party organizations, the formal party organizations do is they're not there to make decisions. Um, they are there to provide a venue and some official imprimatur for the decisions that are made by others. Um, and if they're perceived as making decisions on behalf of the party, they're deciding what the party should stand for or who should be nominated for something, they get a lot of pushback for it. And then people start trying to deprive them of their jobs. So like, you know, in many ways, they don't want that headache. Um, they don't want to play the role that we generally think this is what parties are supposed to be doing. Um, so it's a, it's a weird position that they're in. Um, and there's, I guess, a handful of parties, local parties across the country where they will do that sort of thing. Um, but I think for the most part, they're trying to stay clear of it. And not only, not just because they think it's, you know, the formal party should, in some normative sense, stay neutral on, um, on nomination questions, but because if they do weigh in, that causes massive pushback. It causes, it causes uh, contentiousness within the party. It can result in someone winning without their help who then hates them um, or just it makes people angry <laughs> and costs them their job. Right. So I wonder if that's almost like the wrong place to look at times. All right, we've got another question okay. here. Sorry, I didn't mean to bonk you in the head. <laughs> um, so it seems like there's this general consensus here that anti-party sentiment like exists is very pop is very kind of powerful, but is in some sense irrational. And I'm curious if we could draw that out a little more. Like why, why would say a climate activist uh, identify the Democratic Party as their barrier to achieving their goals and why are they wrong? That's an interesting way to phrase that question. <laughs> I think that that is a, a a good question, and I mean, I don't know if I like the word irrational. I mean, presumably, like, if we want to take that rational choice perspective, it's rational. It must be because people are rational, and so why they well, we have to question. The question we have to figure out is why they think this thing. Um, but I think the 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 point, the real question is like, what? Why is it that um, a group that it should be considered themselves part of the, this alliance identifies that coalition as the barrier, as you say? Um, and um, and sh if 
they do see the, the the party as the barrier, I'm obviously we're trying to argue that it, it isn't the barrier, right? So that's 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 the way whether it's rational or not. Um, and I think uh, a fair amount of it is from a sense that we have that is whether it's rational or not. But we have taught people that uh, compromise is bad and that compromise is um, uh, is. It is a path is not a path like you don't know, to get to, to where you want to go and you see uh, lack of success on things and eventually sort of well, we have to solve this problem tomorrow and so we need to do this um, and so uh, there is a path to climate reform that goes through the party that actually cares about climate reform but if you keep telling people that they don't care about climate reform and they keep telling people Democrats don't then a climate activist is going to say well why should I support with the Democratic Party they don't like climate change meanwhile Republicans are like God, we got to get rid of these Democrats who are crazy about climate change, right? <laughs> and, and so, you know, clearly somebody, you know, the, the de- Republicans don't see it that way. Um, so it's, it's really like, you know, how do you convince people that building a coalition is, uh, is, the, is the path? And it is not crazy to doubt this because any kind of coalition uh, is going to, you know, there's going to be mem- part, elements of that coalition that are going to get uh, you know, second, be second tier. All things are going to be second tier. So it's less, it's more frustrating than if they were at the top of somebody's agenda. Of course, if you're at the top of the agenda because you're in a Green Party, um, but then you don't uh, win control of government, then you're at the top of an agenda. But policymaking is still policymaking later on. And I think a lot of the focus is, so this is my, I, I'm coming around to this in a long uh, winded way, I think, but a lot of the focus is on when you vote. I voted for the climate change because I voted for the Green Party, so yay. But then actually implementing policy involves compromise with the larger center-left party uh, at some point. And that's something people don't get. And, and I don't think it's, they're, they're stupid to not get it. It's hard to get. But that, I think, is the, the issue. I, I feel like we could rewind the tape and re-listen to the answer you just provided. And it's like the entire premise of Biden's right. candidacy. Like this idea that we have to compromise and build coalitions. <clears throat> and like this is what he is running on. And so in some way, this, this question that you've raised is sort of the, the big struggle that's going on in the Democratic Party right now. In some ways, although I think I would also would point out that, like, you know, Biden is not the only person who wants to do this. And another big yeah. part of Biden's right. particular appeal is that he is somehow, like, you know, the safe choice, whether he does anything at all. And right. And there might be other uh, uh, other actors who would do also would do the, the coalition building and the compromise, but they would foreground some of these issues. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. like, what's important, I think, is not that you choose Biden. Um, if you're, uh, if what you care about is, is uh, environmental policy, maybe in fact that's just, you don't do that. But what you definitely don't do is vote green. You vote for a more environmentally organ- oriented candidate and platform in the Democratic Party. Like because... Jay Inslee. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so yeah. yes, except yeah. except here's the problem with Jay Inslee is that uh, while the environmental politics is really important, it's, it is, and you know, some people don't would, will disagree with me on this. It is not the most, not the only issue. Right. right. So I recall after, you know, when after the 2016 election, I was talking to a student of mine who's a very smart student. And he's like, you know, it really just seems like climate change is the problem, because if we don't fix this in the near future, then, uh, you know, I, he is going to grow up and, and it's, like, it's easier for all of us. Those of us who are older, we might outlive. We might not. Uh, we might die before the planet dies. Um, but he's concerned that that won't happen to him. And he's he's right. And then I, I, I said, well, yeah, that's right. I said, but you know what, if if what if what if we never win an election again, because we don't deal with these. Uh, voter suppression issues that, that mm-hmm. Seth mentioned a minute ago. And he's like, oh yeah, 
right? You got to do that too. So the problem with Inslee is that he's got he's he's on the right side on one issue, but meanwhile there are lots of other issues that also are really bad, really a, a serious concern. And um, uh, even if even if literally the environmental politics is the environmental issue is the issue because the the planet is going to you know be gone in twenty years. Um, if you can't build a coalition with the rest of it, then we'll live on a planet. We'll solve that problem, maybe. But meanwhile, we'll all be facing with a gross income inequality and all the rest of these things. Mm-hmm. Everything's connected. Yep. Yeah, I would say... Mm. Oh. How about this one? Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> oh! <laughs> okay. <laughs> wrong mic. Okay, so I would say, thinking broadly and abstractly, I think what we're hearing, and this is... I don't have a good answer to the local politics question because this is not my area. Uh, but I think the, in some sense, it's never surprising when collective action fails. There, you know, the, the, the line from Anna Karenina, um, all good families are identical because they all do everything right. <laughs> That's not part of what, but every family that falls apart falls apart in a different way. There are hundreds of things that happen to go right to make collective action work well. And any one of them can fail to make collective action not work well. So, I mean, it's almost more surprising when collective action, when a Chinese Communist Party is built, because that's really, I mean, it's really kind of extraordinary to be able to dominate all of those things so extraordinarily well. Um, And in a democratic system, it's hard for all of those things to go well all at once. Um, so I think the answer on the climate change one is that I think Hans's answer is that collective action is really, really hard and not very pleasant, actually. It's not really very fun, but collective action is absolutely essential uh, for making anything happen, including climate change policy. Okay, I think we have time for one more, maybe. If we can, if we can squeeze it in quickly. I I don't know what I won, Um, but I the con. There you go. I won the con. I I mean, I think related to this is there's the way democracy actually works is not the way that that we talk about democracy. Um, So we're having a presidential election where one of the big issues is: do we have Medicare for all in one year or five years or ten years? Right. (laughs) And that's silly. Like, none of those things are going to happen. What we're voting for is a person who's going to fight with, the, with um, a bunch of other people for incremental change. But we don't talk about po- politics like that, right? It's, it's more fun to talk about how there's some small cabal who's preventing everything from happening, that the vast majority of Americans want climate change, but there's this tiny cabal that's stopping that from happening. And that's just simply not the truth, right? That, um, you know, we tried to get rid of smoke-filled rooms and, you know, and, and like when we were talking about these reforms, if I want the, the tiny cabal to get powerful, what are the two things that I would do? Term limits and taking money out of politics, <laughs> right? Those are the two things. Um, but that's not that's sort of not how we talk about it because we act like democracy is supposed to work that you know that there's some kind of general will that's obvious that's being subverted by these meanies um 
and and it's just not the case. So we have all these reforms that's trying to get around the, the meanies, and that's not how it works. If you don't have a smoke-filled room, you have other people who are setting that agenda. But the nice thing about the smoke-filled room is you can keep an eye on the door, and you know who's going in and out, right? And, and so the question is, how do we have that level of transparency in parties that are kind of different? Question mark. Do you want to? Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take, because actually there was a point that I wanted to make at some point, and I'm going to use that question to, to make it. A, I, I like the question at the end about well, we, we can tell who's going in and out of the smoke-filled room. How can we make that more transparent? I mean, we uh, have actually some experience with this in a, uh, not in a party sets context, but in a, in a, in a uh, political context. We have a legislature, we send people to it, we know who's there in the legislature, we pay attention to their debates and so forth. Yes, they have conversations in the halls and so forth that are, you know, in their, their, their no longer so smoke-filled offices, but they're still, we know who's there, we know that, the, and they're accountable uh, for various reasons. Um, and we think that the output of that is democratic. So why can't the output of a convention where we send people to the convention to also do those things, be just as democratic. Um, I don't think it's a simple question. One, one obvious thing is that a convention uh, ends, so you don't, so everybody's term limited, and so the term limit problem we just described is still present. Um, but you could create an institution where everybody at the convention is the people who are elected officials of this party across all levels of government, and then if you don't want the Democratic Party to have these kinds of people in them, then you vote them out. Uh, at their local stage, and then they won't be the ones that are there uh, at this convention. And then you could also send other people who will be there for shorter periods of time, but then they will uh, be part of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party's uh, longstanding um, members and so forth. Like, we could build something around that. And what I like about this idea is that we could build it without a lot of huge changes, because we already have conventions. We just send people there the wrong way. Um, but I think that we could... And this, what, what is this doing? This is empowering of the party to be, to get back to the earlier point that you were raising, um, that I think is, I, I don't, I think really is the point that we should highlight, is you're empowering the party then to be a, an army that fights for the things that it wants, right? And that's what we want to do, is we want to say, okay, this army wants to do Medicare for all. I don't know what, in how many years, but they want to do it. Um, let's empower them to do that, rather than make them fight each other over how many years it's going to be before they do uh, Medicare for all. If we're going to do that, we have to actually pay attention to the, that this army exists and that there's another army that wants some other things and it also has a just, you know, just to, to want the things it wants. An army is a very, you know, martial metaphor. Maybe it's too much, but still these two groups that are going to co coalesce together and want and more than perhaps more than two that uh, try to accomplish something. But we need to, to empower those ideas. Um, and so I'm going to end with, uh, no, I'm just, that's, that's enough. I'll stop right. Uh, I, I really appreciate Chris's question because um, it goes to a, a frustration with I have that we're, we're describing, think, we're using the wrong language, we're using the wrong rhetoric to describe a lot of the, the things that we're dealing with. And one of the particular examples of this is how we talk about party nominations. We describe them as a contest. They're not a contest, it's a decision. It's a party, the party's making a decision. And if it's a contest, well, then it, it has to be fair to all the players. Um, if it's a decision, you can say, well, no, that's a crazy idea. You know, if we're deciding between Yosemite or Yellowstone or the moon as a family vacation, you can say, no, the moon's a dumb idea. We're not going to do that. Um, and, but if it's a conscious, well, you know, we have to be nice to everyone. Um, <laughs> so, but, and so that's frustrating and it's ongoing, but I think in, in some ways it is easier to change rhetoric than it is to change institutions. And I don't know how exactly we go about doing that, but maybe that starts with people like us 
scholars with a you know at least a modestly public platform um, that can talk about things in a, and I think in a healthier way whether we're talking about decisions that parties make or Congress makes or, or other parts of the of the political conversation. Amy, Erica, you want a last word? Otherwise, I'm going to try to sum um, up, but go ahead. Go ahead. No. You don't want a last word? Say, no. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming to the panel. I'm, I'm going to try to summarize where – I don't know if we got anywhere, but to the extent that we did, I think what we accomplished is identifying that parties are really important for democracies, um, and they are inherently themselves undemocratic institutions, and we need stronger parties, but the, to the extent to which that many parties around the world in democracies – um, are diseased right now, uh, overcoming some of that disease has to involve strengthening those parties, but we're not totally clear on what that means to make the, the stronger parties. Some of the more specific reforms that we talked about are changes that seem like worth talking further about and, and researching and writing more about have to do, uh, I'm thinking about Hans's proposal about multi-member districts uh, this, and, and how that interfaces with ranked choice voting and, and other types of uh, electoral choices that are not um, in, in um, such widespread use you know, across the United States right now, um, but where comparative politics is com particularly useful um, for, for a greater understanding of those things. Um, and uh, we talked, to, or, or I at least was thinking about, we didn't go as far down the road as I thought we might, about uh, regulatory changes in, in the form of campaign finance and in the form of um, uh, media regulation and uh, reducing income inequality and some of the other things that are the sources of polarization that have led to populism and, and some of these other democratic weakened, uh, things that have weakened democratic institutions. Um, and then the last thing is to sort of deputize not all of us here, but all of us in this room, all of us at this conference as a discipline to do more public engagement, uh, to share what we do know, not just with one another, but with the world um, at large, uh, because I, I, I do think we have, as a, as a, as a collective body of scholars, um, in, insightful things to, to say and to share on, on a number of these questions, and we should be working more to, to get those out there. <laughs>